Welcome to the Eastern Approaches podcast with me, Alex Thompson. This is a special number on location in Armenia. And I have the privilege of being joined today, not only by my regular podcasting partner for this series, Gevor Virats, who is Armenian, but also by a first-time visitor to Armenia, Sheikh Imran Hossein from Trinidad and Tobago. Listeners are going to have to excuse us that we're recording this impromptu and that our voices are suffering due to the intensity of the programme that we're doing here. Uh, but Sheikh, it's an honour to be able to speak to you here, and I do mean that sincerely and not as flattery, because you are, as you say quite rightly yourself now, a senior scholar of Islam with over 20 books to your name, and to my knowledge, and I think to your own knowledge, you are the only leader of thought in the Islamic world who has come out unambiguously on matters of oppression of historic Christian minorities in the cradle of Christianity. In fact, two cradles, the Caucasus and the Balkans, historically ruled by the Ottoman Empire. And you have condemned any violence in the name of Islam perpetrated in these territories. So this is your first visit to Armenia. You're about to go back to Albania, a country that you visited before to great acclaim. So how long has it been on your mind to visit such countries as Armenia and the Balkan countries? And what began your process of thinking that you should travel there and seek like minds there? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm very happy um, Alex, to be once again in your company, we had a very long interview in Exeter when I met you for the first time, uh, maybe a month or two months ago. Uh, I apologize for my sore throat and the recurring cough, but I've been traveling now for more than two months and uh, it is tiring. It is my It was my interest in Islamic eschatology which led me to examine in a different way the Ottoman Empire. I had previously had a positive view of the Ottoman Empire that they had at least made an attempt to preserve the external form of a model of a state quite different from that which Europe has now imposed on all of mankind, the modern secular state with territorial sovereignty and citizenship and so on. And uh, the Ottoman Empire had preserved at least the external form of the holy state or the Khilafa state. The Ottoman Empire had also preserved in its market real money gold and silver coins, etc. But it was when I studied eschatology that I realized that there was a more sinister role to the Ottoman Empire in that they were waging bogus jihad on Orthodox Christians in the the Balkans and Turkey. We should immediately explain to those not familiar with theological vocabulary that eschatology is the study of prophecy of the last things, the last that's, times. That's right, the study of the end times. And uh, 
when I proceeded with my studies in eschatology, I found that the Christians of that part of the world had a very important role to play in the end time, which was mentioned in the Quran. And I then realized to my utter horror, surprise and horror, that the Ottoman Empire was actually engaged in trying to sabotage that end time friendship and alliance between Muslims and Christians. Uh, that was a surprise for me. And when I began to speak on the subject, I found myself to be a solitary voice and that my own people had been totally brainwashed in being uh, supporters of the Ottoman Empire and that the Ottoman Empire had done this great job of spreading Islam to so many parts of the world. <laughs> and uh, I then began the effort now of building ties with this part of the Christian world which had been oppressed, horribly oppressed. So I traveled twice to Belgrade. I traveled once to Moscow and uh, I went to Albania and now I'm in Armenia as part of that effort now to reconnect with that part of the Christian world and uh, this is the most moving experience of all, Armenia, because the Armenians have suffered the most. I have some surprises to tell the Armenian people when I speak tomorrow. Gevork, how do you see that being an Armenian theologian? Uh, are we making too much of this, that uh, we're just getting carried away in the emotion of a senior and orthodox Sunni Islam cleric, or, or sheikh, I should say, um, coming and repudiating Ottoman violence? Uh, it would be tear, a tearjerker for many an Armenian, but it, it, is there substance to it for you? First of all, I'd like to greet you, Alex, and also our dear Sheikh and the people that would listen to this podcast. Greetings to all of you. And uh, in my opinion, the, the reason why uh, we are able to talk with the Sheikh of the Islamic faith is not the violence of the Ottomans, is not the suffering of the Armenians, and it is not the history that we had spent in either wars or the times of peace. The main purpose and the main reason why, why we're sitting next to each other and talking is because the messengers of God that we follow have commanded us to do that, have commanded us to be peaceful, to be loving, to be friendly, to be understanding and seeking uh, uh, mutual uh, help in, in uh, seeking brotherly love from each other. It is, it is only natural to believers in the one God, uh, of which there is no other, there is only one God. And I would like to distract a little bit here, because sometimes I hear Christians say that Allah is not the God of the Christian faith, because this uh, name comes from the Arabic word. And to these Christians, I would like to say, if you believe that there is none other God than the one God, then you cannot possibly say such a thing that Allah is not one God. By that you would be 
saying that there are more gods than one. There is only one God and we cannot possibly recognize that there is anything else apart from one God and that is the Christian position and that has been the Christian position from, a, from the very beginning. Now my uh, statement here as a Christian and as an Armenian is this. Yes, we have to attempt to correct whatever is correctable in history. We do have to do that. We have to attempt to understand the reasons why everything happened the way it happened. We do have to do that. But this is not the command, the primary command that we have from the scriptures that we have. The primary command is love one another like the Lord God has loved you. That's what the Christian essence teaches us as, as believers in God. That does not restrict itself only to people of your kin or your religion. Because the Lord God has created the whole of the world without exception. Every single person in the world is the creation of God. And therefore we do not have a right to hate a person, another person. We have to honor God in that he willed to create another person and we have to love another person like ourselves because the Lord God loved us. And I therefore want to state my position here that I welcome dear Sheikh as my teacher because he's senior and he has superior knowledge to mine but also as my elder brother because we worship the only God that is God and there is none but him and in my communication and in my interaction with the Sheikh I have seen nothing but brotherhood respect and love Sometimes correction, which is brotherly, respectful, and loving. And sometimes I am enlightened by what I have to learn from, uh, from the tradition of Islam. So I am only grateful that this, uh, this happens, and I'm uh, very happy that we can do it in Armenia. Because Armenia is located where there are Muslims living around Armenia, and there are Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox Christians in Georgia that, that is right next to Armenia. And Armenia, of course, is historically an Orthodox country, but not a part of the Eastern Orthodox a family of churches, but rather a church that is in another brotherhood that is uh, often denoted as an Oriental Orthodox brotherhood. Uh, and that's, of course, akin to the Ethiopian church and, and the Syriac church. But uh, regardless of uh, these different alliances, it is, it is the fact that we are right in the middle of where everything happens, that uh, I think uh, that Armenia is important as a, as a meeting place, as a, as a crossing place for all these different uh, worldviews that can talk here. Sheikh, we've just heard from Gevor much of the historical, theological and we could say theoretical basis for a rapprochement of serious Muslims and serious Christians in this region. But I've already heard you talking to Armenians about something much more current and acute in your view, and that is the banking and the monetary system. And you have said quite pertinently to an Armenian already that he shouldn't be looking to politics or business to further friendship between Christian and Muslim peoples, but he should be looking to the enemy of the banking and monetary system. What's drawn you to that conclusion and how do you wish to present that to Middle Eastern Christians? The Lord God has informed us 
that he wants us to be righteous in our conduct. Indeed, the only ones who can survive in the end time, while all of mankind is drifting, adrift, the only ones who can survive are those who have faith and who are righteous in conduct, and who stand up for the truth and exhort others to the truth, and who are patient in this struggle. Righteous conduct prevails over economic prosperity. Righteous conduct prevails over living the good life. Mankind today is presented with the fulfillment of a prophecy that our prophet made 1400 years ago when he said that the Antichrist will come with a mountain of bread. And he said that people will follow him for his bread. And that's exactly what's happening today. We have economic refugees from all over the world flooding to Europe flooding to the United States and Canada because of the mountain of bread. And we have so many parts of Europe, in the Balkans in particular, who are lusting for membership in the European community because they know this is the road to share in the mountain of bread. Even that part of the Orthodox Christian world in the Balkans where NATO had bombed them for something like 80-something days. Serbia, even Serbia wants to be a member of the European Union. Why? Because of the mountain of bread. The Jal or the Antichrist has a mountain of bread today. Where did he get the bread from? How did he get it? And the answer to the, both the questions is primarily usury. The lending of money on interest, the borrowing on interest is one form of usury. And that is the banking system today. And the banking system has not only been used to rip off mankind, to, to suck the wealth of mankind. Uh, they don't lend money to you just to make more money. They lend money to you to enslave you, <laughs> to rip you off and to bring you to a situation of such destitution that in order to eat, you got to toe their line. But the, the monetary system has played uh, an equally important role when they replaced real money, which is gold and silver coins, money with intrinsic value and they replaced it with bogus money, fraudulent money, haram money. And that monetary system has functioned as a suction pump with which you clean your carpets, sucking the wealth of mankind. And building this mountain of bread in one part of the world and leaving the rest of the world without bread, almost without bread. This is usury. But there's another reason why this part of the world is so wealthy, and that is that the Antichrist 
has used this civilization which he created, modern Western civilization. This is his civilization. The Antichrist is our prophet. He says, he says that the Antichrist sees with the left eye. He blind in the right eye. It looks like a bulging grape. But your Lord is not one eye, indicating that the Antichrist has external sight and is internally blind. And he wants to transform all of mankind into carbon copies of himself. So they're all internally blind. And when you're internally blind, you can't see the penetration, the reality of things. And so you dance to every tune that he plays. But the, the prophet also said that the Antichrist has the word kafir, disbeliever, written on his forehead. And that is precisely modern Western civilization. It has, it has kafir or disbeliever written on its forehead. And anyone who has sight can see it. <laughs> but those without sight, they have only external sight. They are blinded by the wealth and the glitter of the modern West. But in addition to the mountain of bread, the modern West has been empowered by Dajjal with the scientific and technological revolution, which has helped to become so powerful and so wealthy. And uh, one of the missions I'll try to fulfill while he, being here in Armenia is to teach the subject. Uh, Sheikh, when you say that uh, the Antichrist has the word kafir written on his forehead, is that, does that passage not continue on to say that every <coughs> believer will be able to read that, uh, that written on his forehead. Whether he is Khatib or Gairu Khatib, whether he is literate or, or he is illiterate, he'll still be able to read it because he's not reading with these eyes, the external eye. But it does not explicitly say that every Muslim will read it. It says every, every believer. believer. That's right, every believer. Every believer. A Muslim by definition, is one who submits to the Lord God. A Muslim, however, has another meaning, the one who follows, is part of the community which follows Muhammad There are two meanings to the word Muslim. Every believer includes everybody who, who, who has faith in the heart will be able to recognize and read the word kafir, but apparently most of them today can't read it. But I would like to stress this for our Christian audience, that you do not have to be a part of the religion of Islam formally in order to recognize that there is something wrong with the system in which we are living today, that there is uh, oppression and there, are, there is inequality that is unjust because there are inequalities that are just inequalities. We are not all born equal. We are different height, different size, different weight, different character. It's often been said that all men are born with equal rights. They're not born equal. That's the rights are equal, not the men. Uh, the rights and also the potential of every man is 
perhaps equal because uh, uh, there is no li there should be no limit other than what is what is uh, placed there by, by by God Himself. But we should not be limited limiting each other by uh, thinking that any one of us is inferior because of his background or, or because of his. If we get inured to the system of a permanent super wealthy class, uh, a cult ruling us, I don't like the word elite, um, we've also lost sight of that because if the money is no longer circulating due to the vacuum cleaner trick that the Sheikh's been describing, uh, then we will do ourselves down in a sense. We'll think we'll never have a chance by honest labour and genius to enrich ourselves because the money isn't flowing around the economy. That's a point I've heard the Sheikh made, make yes. quite powerfully. A healthy economy. The economy that the religion, which has come from the Lord God, wants to establish, is an economy in which wealth circulates through the economy. So some people can be rich today and poor tomorrow, and some can be poor today and rich tomorrow, because wealth is circulating through the economy. When wealth is not circulating through the economy because riba has taken control of the economy, usury, then the rich will remain permanently rich forever and ever and ever. And the poor will be imprisoned in permanent poverty and that is oppression. And the religion which has come from the Lord God has zero tolerance for oppression. We therefore need to study the subject of how riba or usury in all its different forms corrupts the economy and allows one people to become filthy rich at the expense of all the rest of mankind. And there is another thing that I would like to add to this and this comes from, uh, from my uh, senior mentor in, 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 in the Christian faith, he says that whenever you see that you are surrounded by darkness, it is often uh, very dangerous to attempt to create an artificial light, but you should rather wait from the, for the sunrise from the Lord God. The sunrise will come. Now, this is saying that when we're, we're speaking about usury, and we're speaking about something that is clearly oppressive. We should be saying this and we should be uh, making our position very, very clear on that. But what we shouldn't do is to try to find a way to trick that around. For example, you and I both grew up in Reformed Protestantism and whether yes. it was in the former Soviet world or in Europe or America, the doctrine formulated by the Calvinists was uh, this, in contradistinction to Luther, who preceded them, their doctrine was usury is bad because the Bible says so. However, merchants must be allowed to make a reasonable profit. Adjective no, not further defined. Yes, and, and, and usury uh, and, and uh, the acceptance of usury is where I defer with Protestantism, uh, especially the Calvinistic tradition, and I condemn it because I think that by doing that, we have set the ground for what, 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 for the kind of world that we are living today. We, in fact, our approach should have been different as Christians. 
Our approach should have been based on what we are told in the scriptures explicitly. The Presbyterian tradition for that has a regulative principle. It is applied in the worship, but it's, some, it's not applied in the conduct very often, which is uh, not really understandable because the regulative principle should apply also in the conduct of a believer. It would be regrettable if we had only to go to a sheikh of Islam to tell us <laughs> that the economy is also part of worship because it's the conduct of life. It but is, it is a Christian doctrine and a Jewish doctrine too. Mm -hmm. It is, of course, uh, there are different takes and I would say there are many spins that, that are taken uh, towards the scriptures because of the tradition and because of, I would say, that the Antichrist and the spirit of Antichrist, of which we are told in, in, in Second Thessalonians, that has penetrated the church, that has covered the uh, sight of the believers, and, and that, is, that has entered the hearts of the believers, what that has done is that we do, we, we do not longer feel a desire to return to the root of what the scripture teaches. But how do we understand what is, what is the teaching of the church? By seeing how it was applied by the prophets and by Jesus Christ and by his apostles. When we look at how the apostles and Jesus Christ and the prophets applied the teaching, then we learn what lessons we can derive from that. But we have divorced the coherence of our lives from the knowledge in our head. And we say, well, this is our knowledge. We kind of know that these things exist and they're somewhere in the mind. But what we do not do is say, well, there's another compartment, which is my actual life, and I will not connect the two with, with each other. Literally turning a blind eye to it in this description of Dajjal that we've just heard. Very, very literally so. And it is the time for the Christian church, and I know that there will be many Christian listeners to this podcast. It is the time for the Christian church to wake up to wake up and see what's happening in the world. We're discussing nationalism, we're discussing rights, we're discussing new legislation, but we're not saying that the true legislation comes from God alone, only from Him, and it is found in the Holy Scriptures. And we're not discussing that. We're saying, okay, has the government, government done us any good or, or not? But we're within the framework of what they tell us to believe. Well, I personally prefer to follow God the best way I can understand it. I'm not saying that I know it all or I, I'm nearly as good as, as, as an average believer even should be, but the attempt should be made on behalf of every believer to follow what the Lord God teaches us. Gentlemen, let's get practical and visionary at the same time towards the end of this discussion. The Sheikh's ambition, hope, and I think yours too, Gevorg, um, is that Bible-believing Christians and Quran-believing Muslims, certainly in this part of the world, should stop looking to their governments or state-sponsored religion for their doctrine, particularly if how, in how they conduct themselves economically. Inevitably, they'll have a government, whether in a nominal Christian state like Armenia, or a mixed one like Lebanon, or an overwhelmingly Islamic one, uh, like Egypt, well, Egypt isn't the, the most overwhelmingly Islamic because of the Copts, but a North African country. Let's say that a proportion of people in each of these countries in the, the greater Middle East do say, we cannot be trusting the banks anymore. They're stealing our money from us. We need a real usury-free or riba-free economy. What is that going to look like? And particularly, gentlemen, can it be 
that the traditional means that have been used, uh, banking with word of honour, money as means of exchange, uh, imperishable foodstuffs uh, as currency units, can these become common to the well-meaning Jews, Christians and Muslims in this region that they can have a circulating economy independent of the globalist banking system and their national institutions? I will just say this. Prior to implementing any of these things, we need to build bridges of trust between each other. The trust, it, it has disappeared completely from the relationships of, 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 of people. Uh, the husband does not try trust his wife. The father does not trust his son. This is the condition that we're living in. And uh, let alone, of course, the trust between people of different religions and so forth. Take the Netherlands for one example. Uh, I have uh, married and uh, settled down in the Netherlands, and uh, everyone from the notaries to the bankers say when you get married, we presume you want to have your own finances. Oh, you want a joint account? Why do you want one of those? Show us more papers. Do you understand the risks of that? Precisely, precisely, Alex. But it's, it's not merely the financial sector. Even, even an ordinary thing that is a very ordinary thing, people cannot trust each other in it because people will seek their interest, but they will not seek the greater goal that is pursued even through the little means of, of, of little things are in our day-to-day -day life. But we need to rebuild trust, and for that we need to talk to each other honestly, sincerely, and openly. We do have disagreements on certain matters. We do have them, and nobody's hiding them. Nobody's watering them down. I want to make this clear. Nobody's watering them down. But then look at it from another side. Who is greater, the Lord God or our disagreements? Who is greater? And if we follow the Lord God, then we have to maintain the disagreements that we have, but we have to we have to make the attempt to understand another. Maybe we're denying something that has come from the Lord God, and then shame be on us. And this is what we do not realize as a Christian church, and this is what we need to be corrected in. And these talks that we have, these conversations, they help us immensely. Because the Islam that we're seeing, that's portrayed by the media, it's a different kind of Islam. It's the kind of Islam that is approved that is maintained and managed by the people, the very people who want to enslave us. Where else will you hear a word like the Sheikh said just now, that you will be able to recognize the word kafir written on the Dajjal's forehead, regardless of whether you're a Muslim, a Jew, or a Christian, if you're a believer? Where else will you hear that? Is, is, is another Muslim scholar going to tell you that? Well, I haven't heard. I've met people. I haven't heard one person say that. They tell me, oh, no, no, this is only reserved to the Muslims. And in order to be one of us, in order to be spared from the Antichrist, you have to become one of us and become the follower of Muhammad. By that, I would betray the tradition that I have that has come from Jesus Christ and the apostles. The, Jesus Christ sent the apostles to Armenia for us to be his followers. Why would I say, no, Jesus, I will no longer follow the teaching that I got directly from you and go to follow Muhammad. Peace and blessings be upon him, but he was sent to another place with his mission. We've got the mission that we have. I will hand this over now to the Sheikh. I'm very intrigued, particularly Sheikh, because you have, I think in the last couple of years, told those who listen to you, don't try to set up Islamic uh, refuges, uh, Islamic places of retreat to the mountains, rather seek places where you can dwell peaceably 
in a religiously mixed environment of sincere people. Mm -hmm. What brought you to that position, and how do you see it working out uh, in practice? Before we turn to that subject, our Prophet, Allah's blessings be upon him, prophesied. And I want to share this prophecy with my Christian brothers and sisters. He said that the river Euphrates will uncover a mountain of gold and the people will fight for that gold. And the 99 out of every 100 who fight for that mountain of gold would be killed. But each would say, I am the one who would survive. But the believers must not touch that gold. This prophecy was fulfilled in 1974. When, a mount, when, a, when an ocean of oil underneath the river began to function as a mountain of gold and the American petrodollar was born. I know I'm cutting corners here and some may not be able to understand, but if they go to my lectures on Islam and the international monetary system, they'll get the whole analysis there. We are perceiving now precisely the beginnings of that attack on the mountain of gold. And uh, those whose wealth is based on the mountain of gold are now in a state of terror. The Chinese have led the effort, despite many other things that China is doing that we, not, we may not approve of, short term. But the Chinese have led the effort against the, an unjust petrodollar monetary system. And Russia now has the muscle, the military muscle, to stand up with China. And then you have India and you have South Africa and Brazil and they con constituted BRICS. And China is now threatening the petrodollar monetary system, openly defying the United States, which, which insisted on getting Saudi Arabia and the Arab oil producing countries, and then OPEC, to make it the law that you cannot buy oil without US dollars. And what is China doing now? China is challenging that. Russia is challenging that. India is challenging that. Iran is challenging. We don't have the time to expand on it. And we therefore are now on the doorstep of the fulfillment of that prophecy of a war which will be waged with weapons of mass destruction because it will kill 99% of combatants. So while we may look short term as hot, what can we do to respond to this unjust monetary system? Uh, what can we do at the micro level? What can we do at the macro level? It was uh, with just joy in my heart that I got the news this morning or yesterday that uh, Zimbabwe, Zimbabwe has done what I asked them to do 20 years ago. Zimbabwe is a major producer of gold, the 10th biggest in the world. 
and a, a very committed Christian country, particularly among the Matabililand provinces. And uh, I do a, a, a lot of assistance for um, Christian missions, Dutch and Scottish missions mm. out there. So what you're about to say thrills my heart as well and is one example of why, against Christian critics, I appreciate what you have to say. Well, do go on and explain. Yes. What uh, Zimbabwe is doing now is opening a door for many other countries to enter, like Pakistan. Uh, they, they've now declared we're going to defy the IMF, which has prohibited the use of gold as money. And we're going to mint coins, and we're making it legal tender in our country. And we're saying the primary purpose of our introducing these coins into the economy, into the market, is so that these coins can function as a store of value. That is a good beginning. For those who don't know, Zimbabwe, ever since the Rhodesia conflict, and particularly in the latter years of the Mugabe presidency, has just uh, stuttered from year to year, from month to month, with people starving and unable to build up any savings or get anything done, such as medical treatment or education for their children, precisely for the lack of a store of value. They, they dollarized, as did some Latin American countries. They said, let's just spend the US dollar. There weren't enough physical dollars around in the country. Then they said, let's create a reserve note pegged to the dollar. And of course, as with Eastern Europe or Latin America, before you could say, hey, presto, the black market street rate, the de facto rate, uh, had vastly deflated. They could not store their value. And here's the International Monetary Fund, one of the three institutions set up by Bretton Woods. Well, there was to be a third, a trade body, but the Americans didn't want it. The IMF and the World Bank are the two they did make. The IMF, the robber of countries, as we've seen from many uh, writers, Ernst Wolf is, is a good, good one, said, no, you mustn't have gold in your monetary system because, well, they didn't use this phrase, but bad money drives out good. You know, So we, we want bad money in the world, so you can't have any good because then people would see that the rest was worthless. But Sue, do go on, please. How, how do we get this going? Are, are you suggesting that uh, the awake people uh, in the Middle East can also start using gold and silver as currency? The governments are betraying the people. So I think, I think it is um, very difficult for any Arab country uh, to get that kind of a government to do what the government of Zimbabwe has done. Yes, but as for the survival in these end times and about leaving the cities, yes, can the Antichrist control the cities today. The prophet prophesied that women would be dressed and yet naked. Around the world today, you're seeing it's the city that is leading the world to that nakedness. Um, I traveled in Pakistan for five months last year and I never saw a single woman's leg. Not one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I go around the world today and I'm seeing the women are dressed and yet naked, some more than others. But if you leave the cities and you go to the countryside, 
then you'll find less and less of this impact of Dajjal. And that's why I, I made a mistake 20 years ago when I called for the Muslim village. What I should have said, let's come together and build villages, small villages, all people who wish to lead the religious way of life. And in those villages, you must have water, you must have animals, you must plant food so that you can sustain yourself. If you can build a mini ma a micro market, and in that micro market use money with with intrinsic value, whether it be gold and silver, or whether it be rice, or wheat, or sugar, articles of food consumption, which have a shelf life, and which have intrinsic value, and you can use these as money. Barter has its limitations, but money is better than barter. I've been saying this now for several years, and I'm so happy to see people leaving Britain now, going back to Pakistan, heading for the mountains and building these villages. There's uh, a student of yours in the next room in this apartment here in Yerevan who's made that decision to leave the National Health Service and in turn, in time, leave Britain. Yes. So, in closing then, how is the study of the, the last things, the end times, eschatology, it, how is that going to assist Jews, Christians and Muslims who are concerned or, or at their wits end about the sexualization of their children, uh, about the loss of value in money, the tyranny of the banking system. You've described in great detail there the practicalities and the sequence, the building of trust. But as for the study, the theory that should underpin that, is there scope for us to study and discuss eschatology together? There are only two people amongst mankind today who believe as a matter of religious belief that the Messiah came and he left and that he will return. And that when he returns, he's returning to take, to rule the world, <laughs> to rule the world. And therefore, that there will be the triumph of truth over all rivals when the Messiah returns. And for those who don't know, you Muslims <coughs> believe this Messiah to be Jesus just as much as the Christians do. The Quran declares that the Messiah is indeed the son of the Virgin Mary. There's only one Mary, only one, who is a virgin and gave birth to a son. There are no other Marys, only one. Once you have that faith in your heart that history is moving towards that conclusion, that is the direction of the movement of history. You will now have the confidence in your heart, the morale in your heart, that you can now struggle because at the end of the road there is victory. That's the importance of eschatology. Well, one of the traditional confessions state that the chief end of Christians is to glorify God. But uh, according to the scripture, uh, the scriptures, 
the chief end of the Christians is also to wait for the return of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, because that's the command given by Jesus Christ himself in the book of Revelation, uh, which, which we read in the New Testament. And to answer your question, Alex, from the Christian perspective and, 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 uh, and from the point of view of various Christian traditions which agree on that, the focus of the eyes of a Christian should be on Jesus Christ and his return. We know that there is a Dajjal, or the Antichrist, or Ner, as we call him in Armenia. We know that that, that is also happening. We know that devil is doing whatever devil is supposed to be doing. But we are not to be distracted but by their doings. Because as the Quran says, and I'm only paraphrasing and remotely resembling what the Quran says, that they plan their plans, but the Lord God plans his plans, and the Lord God is the best of planners. Now, we do believe that as Christians, and therefore we're focused on the fact that Jesus is returning. We don't know where, when, when is that going to happen. When, we have no idea. What we do know, though, is that we are called to be waiting upon him, with our light ready and our lamps lit so that when he arrives, we are ready to see him. Now, what does that entail? We should be prepared. We need preparation. If uh, the times come that are dangerous, and Second Timothy tells us, chapter 3, if you'd like to read up, it tells us that the times in which we are living today are defined by the word danger. The King James Version, the authorized version of the English Bible, it says perilous times, that the times themselves are dangerous. And now that the times themselves are dangerous, we have to react to the kind of times we're living, living in. But that does not mean that our task has changed in any way, or that our values or goals have changed in any way. We're still to love our children, to protect our families, to love our brothers, to love God, and to live lives, the best lives that we can in terms of righteousness not in terms of per economic prosperity, not in terms of success. Today we live in a success-driven society, and the success is the more nakedness you show. And being in Armenia, it's Kim Kardashian. I always do say this to my Armenian audiences, that I know I'm not uh, Kim Kardashian's bottom, and therefore I will not be very popular amongst the people here. Mm -hmm. But what I have to say comes from the source that is much more important than whatever she has to show on her Instagram. Now, having said that, we have to focus on the things that are eternal, that do not change. With the times, with the dangers, uh, we've been to the Armenian Genocide Museum today. Mm -hmm. And at the Armenian Genocide, we saw people that perished simply because they wanted to retain the values and the kind of life that they were living. They did not have any other guilt or reason there may have been people that were guilty, the individuals of some crimes and so forth, but you cannot bring the whole people and say, well, the whole nation is guilty. That's indiscriminatory and that's, that's a crime to do that even in speech, let alone in practice and administrating any punishment to the people. But these people, they, they, they took that. Now, what is the lesson that we derive from that? Well, there are things more valuable than your economic prosperity. There are things more valuable than what you're able to get from this world. And that is the very essence of what God has given us. So that's what we should be clinging to in order to maintain all the rest. Because seek ye first the kingdom of God, 
That's what, that's what we're told. And we should not be concerned with the end of this passage because that's the business of the Lord God. He says, and everything else will, shall be added unto you. And I would I'd like to close with, with this statement here. I forgot to mention, to introduce Givard. He's not just a participant in this interview, but Givard, I met him a few years ago in, uh, in Brussels, and he reminded me that we had a meeting lasting for hours, but also that Givard is the leader of the team which has organized my visit to Armenia today. And that uh, Alex is now a very important member of my team as well, having met Alex in, um, in Exeter, and Alex traveled all the way to Armenia to be here with me during this visit to Armenia. I'm very grateful, and I'm very, I have great gratitude to both of you for the role that you're playing in organizing my visit. And it is an honor to be with you and to be able to assist you in whatever matter that there is. Join us again before long for another installment of the Eastern Approaches podcast. <laughs>